like every single day I want to quit my job and everything and I feel that uh, it, it's not worth it but most of the time something magical happens every single day like a thank you letter or a, an orphanage that calls and says thank you for the food supplies or a producer who is uh, very happy uh, working with us so something magical happens and every time I, I focus again on my mission and my wish for the future so uh, yeah, that's, I think this confession cannot be found online. <laughs> bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to Mission First, the podcast to get inspired and to learn from successful entrepreneurs who are building a sustainable future for our planet and its people. I am Gilles Toussaint, your host and the founder of GT Impact, a growth and digital marketing agency working only with companies making a positive difference in this world. Lots of us dream of having a real positive impact on the society, but it's easier said than done. Are you dreaming of starting your non-profit organization, but you don't know where to start? Or maybe you've started it, but it turns out that growing it and funding it is more complex than you thought. Well, this episode might have the answers you need to start and grow your non-profit organization. I'm really excited to talk to Melina Tapransi, the founder of Wise Greece, a social entrepreneurship pioneer and non-profit organization. Wise Greece has a double mission. They support small Greek food producers by promoting top quality Greek products, through the sales of which they raise money and buy food in order to donate it to the people in need. They cooperate with more than 100 producers, selling more than 2,500 of their products, and they have distributed more than 50 tons of food to orphanages and soup kitchens across the country. Melina recently won an award from the United Nations, which recognizes her as one of the seven women worldwide whose activity significantly contributes to the achievement of the Global Sustainable Development Goals 2030. She prepared a list of do's and don'ts about how to build a social enterprise. We are going to go through that list in this episode, so be ready to learn from a very inspiring and very impactful entrepreneur. One small comment before we dig into this episode. This podcast is like a masterclass with long episodes where we talk in detail about the challenges and learnings of every guest. But if your time is limited and you still want to get advice about growing your business and having a greater positive impact on this planet, I've just created a best of series with a special format. 10 audio episodes between 3 to 10 minutes, shorter than a coffee break. They are only hands-on advice shared by the guests of this podcast. You can receive these best of episodes by signing up for my newsletter, in which I also send a text summary of the do's and don'ts shared by each guest after every episode. So if you want to get these condensed and useful tips for and from successful entrepreneurs with a sustainable mission, just go to my website, gtimpact.com, or find the link in the description of this episode and sign up for the newsletter. Melina, thank you very much for being with us today. How are you? Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm great. How about you? I'm good. As I said, I got my first vaccine of Corona yesterday, so I'm a bit tired, but that's okay. Let's start with the mission and basically what you're doing with the company. I've tried to describe it a bit, but can you add a few words uh, about exactly what you are doing? Sure. Wise Greece is a social enterprise with a double mission. On the one hand, we support the small food producers in Greece 
to, sub, to, to sell and export their products, while at the same time we managed to donate um, food supplies to orphanages, to soup kitchens, to families, to refugees in need in our country. So in a way, we managed to um, uh, support, you know, the backbone of the Greek economy, the small family-owned businesses, while at the same time, we managed to uh, provide food supplies and high-quality food supplies to people living under the poverty line here in Greece. That's two fantastic missions. I want to go back to these two missions and how you started and how you basically chose to go for these ones. Just to briefly talk about the size and the company stage right now. So how many employees do you have right now? I know you have a difference between employees and volunteers. How big is the company now? Sure. We are a very small and adaptable team. We're a team of eight people. Uh, and this is the, the most common story in social entrepreneurship. And we have more than 60 or 80 volunteers right now supporting our uh, mission. You know, they, they visit orphanages with us, they um, organize events with us, but uh, the core team is a team of eight people. So it all started back in 2013 when I'm pretty sure you remember Greece faced the worst financial crisis in its modern history. And there's an interesting story there because I, I used to work in advertising agencies. I, I, am, uh, I come from the corporate world. And one day I decided to visit a social grocery, which is a, a place where people living under the poverty line go in order to get food supplies, mostly, and uh, maybe some clothes or, you know, other items that they need. And of course, they get them for free. And as I said, it was a really, really difficult time back then uh, in Greece. And I went there just to leave a few clothes that I didn't need. And I saw that people there had only razors to give to the people in need. And it was shocking, as you can understand, because I asked them, you know, people come here to, to get food supplies. This is what they need. This is the most essential thing that, you know, they, they have to have. And you give them razors and they said, you know, this is the only donation that we have. So this is the only thing that we can provide to, to those people. So after this shocking incident, I started thinking there must be another way. There must be a way of doing uh, well by doing good and vice versa. So this is how Wise Greece was born. In order to support the Greek economy, which was, in, was facing severe problems back then, and uh, support people in need with the most essential uh, food supplies that they need in order to survive. Let's talk about how you started that. The first steps you do after, you know, you had this revelation or shocking experience. Um, how, in terms of revenue, can you say if you are like a six-digit, seven-digit revenue per year right now that you have with it, the company? It's a seven-digit uh, revenue per year. And after eight years, you know, we've managed to, to build the concept of uh, Wise Greece, but the concept of social entrepreneurship in Greece as well, because it was completely unknown back then. So when you realize this huge issue about the food donations and the food like demand from the poorest people in the country, and God knows how many they were at the time, and it's a huge issue still now, what are the first steps? How did you come up with that, you know, business model because you have a lot of way to solve or to at least to try to solve that problem. So what were the first steps? 
Okay, so first of all, when I did my research back then, I saw that 3 million Greeks were living under the European poverty line. So for those who don't know, this is 30% of the Greek population. It's a huge number. And unfortunately, it still is due to the COVID crisis, of course, that we are all now facing. So the first steps, uh, to be honest, you know, people think that uh, social entrepreneurs have this uh, revelation or shocking experience and then they really know what to do. No, I didn't. And to be honest, I didn't really know what uh, social entrepreneurship was. I didn't really know the concept. I didn't know the term. I didn't know that social entrepreneurship existed. As I said, I come from a corporate background. so. I didn't really know this uh, combination of entrepreneurship and social impact. So um, the only thing that I did is that uh, I started noticing that a lot of producers were producing amazing products, but they didn't really know how to promote them, how to sell them, how to export the products. Some of them don't even speak English, so it was really hard for them to export the products. So I, I just tried to combine those two facts and see how this would go. Most of the times you feel like you are blind and you are just looking for something and you don't really know if it, if it exists. So I just, you know, took some first steps and I said, okay, let's try this model and see if it's going to work. And to be honest, the first step was to, to start calling a lot of producers in Greece and trying to convince them that this model that I have in mind will actually work for them and will be beneficial for them. And it took me, I think, eight months or so to convince the first producer. It was really hard because, as I said, it was back then the situation was really difficult. Nobody really was in the mood to listen you know, to something new and trust uh, a young woman. So it was really, really difficult to convince the first producers. And after that, I, I think it took me like a year or so to start believing in this concept myself. I mean, even though I was trying to convince others, I had to convince myself as well. How were you doing at that time to fund that part? Was it something you were doing on the side of your job? Exactly, yes. I was working in an advertising agency and at the same time I was uh, trying to build this project. And how long was that period before you were able to you know, validate the model and then start the company officially? I think uh, it was about one year and a half when I managed to validate the model, to uh, get the necessary knowledge and get some producers on board and, you know, have something to start with. And then I made this transition into the social entrepreneurship world. To incorporating, basically starting yes. the company officially. Were you alone when you start or were you already working with other people that became, you know, the co-founders of the company? Or did you start to hire only when you started to basically launch the company? No, I have a co-founder. He used to work with me in this advertising agency, so he trusted the model from the very beginning. We founded this uh, social business together. It'd be so tempting to just go step by step to see everything you've done, but you sent me a very great list of do's and don'ts that I'd like to go through because these are really hands-on advice for, for all the entrepreneurs who are listening to us. So thank you very much for that. Let's start with the first advice you said, start from the social problem. Can you iterate on that? 
Sure. So after so many years, you know, of building the concept of social entrepreneurship in Greece, along with uh, a few other social entrepreneurs in my country, I was lucky enough to be a mentor to a lot of future social entrepreneurs. And what I noticed is that social entrepreneurship as a concept became really sexy at some point. I mean, it was really uh, interesting for a lot of people to become social entrepreneurs. But what they thought is that they will become millionaires by being philanthropists or something, by helping others, which is not the case. So I noticed that they started building their business model and they used to put the profit in the middle when it's right the opposite. When you want to become a social entrepreneur, you need to put the social impact, the social problem in the middle that you want to hopefully provide an active solution to it. So what you do is that you notice that there is a social problem and then you build a business plan around it. And this is what makes you, in a way, a social entrepreneur. If you do the opposite thing, then you have a for-profit business that puts profit in the middle. And whatever you do in terms of the impact is uh, a corporate social responsibility. It doesn't make you a social entrepreneur. So every decision that you make has to be based on the fact that you need to maximize your social impact. So the first do is when, when you want to build a social uh, business, focus on the social problem that you want to solve. Um, question I have, if your goal then is to build it around, you know, maximizing your social impact, what are the KPIs, like a, a typical company would have revenue as a KPI uh, or the yearly objective, how do you measure your impacts on your side and what is your social North Star KPI? Well, there, is, there are a lot of ways to measure your impact. Some are direct and some are indirect. For instance, it's easy for us to measure how many tons of food we provided to people in need. You uh, talked about 50. Uh, the last time we discussed, the two of us, that was the actual number. Today, it's 90 tons of food because we launched a new project and we managed to provide more food supplies to people in need. I have to mention here that we are talking about high quality food supplies, not expired products, not whatever we found and, you know, cheap food supplies. I'm talking about extra virgin olive oil and honey and meat and protein and things that especially children need in order to grow without health problems in, in the future. Um, but at the same time, we measure, you know, how many uh, producers we supported or how many people were hired because of our activities. So there are a lot of KPIs that you can use in order to measure your impact as a social business. You're talking about the tons of food you are uh, delivering and that it's premium quality food. How do you choose the food? Where do you buy it and how do you deliver it? So we buy the products from the same producers that we support. So in, in a way, we support them twice. And on mm -hmm. the other hand, we manage to get a very good price for them since we are, we are buying the food at the wholesale price. Um, and uh, we have a list with uh, pretty much every foundation and orphanage and soup kitchen that exists in Greece. And we talk to them regularly and we monitor their needs 
So some of them might need uh, lentils, others might need pasta or sweets or olive oil or whatever. So we buy the food supplies from our producers and we deliver them to uh, the foundations. And how do you monitor their needs? Yeah, we have a direct contact with them. They send us emails and requests. We call them uh, before every donation and we say, you know, has anything changed? Do you need something else? We are in a direct communication with them. So the second do you sent me was focus on how to maximize the social impact in every step you take. Exactly. This is, I think it's uh, pretty much an extension of the first point is that as a social entrepreneur, you might need to make some decisions that will not benefit the for-profit side of your business, but will benefit more, let's say, the non-profit side of your business, which means that you might hire people uh, who come from a disadvantaged background, who are maybe disabled or who are refugees and they don't speak the same language as you. So you make this decision, you focus on supporting those people more, even though you know that they are not going to be as productive as others, let's say. Uh, but still, you choose to support uh, those people in order to maximize your social impact. And another point is that when you focus on a social problem, let's say we want to support people who don't have enough food supplies, right? If tomorrow, magically, those people have access to the food supplies that they need. This means that I'm out of business, right? As a social entrepreneur, I'm out of business. I have to find another job because if I solve the social problem, then I'm not longer needed. So every uh, serious social entrepreneur knows that, is ready to be out of business whenever the social problem does not exist. And this is not the case with the typical businesses or the startups or any other type of business out there. The dream would be to solve that problem, of course, but I'm sure with the, the impact that you have with that, if that problem would be solved, you'll find a way to do something else. Sure. The third one was build a model that is financially and socially sustainable at the same time. Yes, another issue that I keep on facing with social entrepreneurs is that they focus so much on uh, the social impact that they don't create a financially sustainable model. This means that you do need to have a revenue, you do need to have a profit. Profit is not a bad thing because there is this myth, you know, that social entrepreneurs are philanthropists or they are people who have a lot of money somewhere and they are, you know, they just play around with their business. And this is not the case. We are talking about a regular business that puts uh, social impact on the forefront. So you do need to build a business model like any other regular business that has revenue and maybe multiple revenue streams, which is the best uh, scenario in order to, um, to survive. Because if you don't survive as a business, then you will not be able to provide any kind of solution to the problem, the social problem that you're uh, aiming. So it works both ways. You have to be a businessman or a businesswoman and um, a philanthropist at the same time. 
very good point that I hear from people in the solar industry. Whatever the industry you build, in any case, if you want it to be successful, if you want it to have an impact, you need to be able to make money. Whatever you decide to reinvest it in something else, that's the way you do, it's a different story. But you won't be able to grow if you don't have a good revenue stream, a good revenue income. So to talk about your business model, actually, are you taking a commission on the product you are selling for the producers? Yes, we get a discount from the producers, which is the margin that we have in order to be able to cover our daily expenses and, of course, provide food supplies to people in need. And logistic-wise, are you buying, let's say, you know, a thousand jars of honey that you are selling and if they are not sold, basically it's your responsibility, you've bought them and that's over? No, no, we don't buy, let's say, an amount of every product because, as you can understand, we have 2,500 products. It would be impossible to predict each time what kind of quantity we're, we're going to need. We order when we have the order from uh, the final stores or companies who buy our products, and we get a profit whenever we sell those products. Okay, because that's what I read on your website. So you have, like, shops cafe owners, people who want to basically sell some of your products, just in that case, build a corner with Wise Grease on it, Wise Grease products. And so in that case, they order the products they want among your different like product categories, and then they sell it. And when they sell it, you get the profit. Now, when we sell the products, we get the profit. So we sell okay. to the final stores, but they have the products and they sell, they sell them at a the retail price. And we work with um, coffee shops, with daily shops, with uh, supermarkets. I mean, we have a, a, a huge range of stores that sell our products right now. I read, drifting a little bit, I read on one of your posts or one of your videos, I think that one of the hardest things you had was to gain the producer's trust at the beginning. Was it the hardest part of all the, the first years? So, in a way, it is really good when you are a pioneer because you can build the path. But at the same time, it is really difficult because you're all alone. You don't have lawyers, accountants, mentors, nobody who is able to help you. So uh, I think I just overcame this, um, these difficulties just because I said, just give it a go. I mean, give it a try. You don't have anything to lose, honestly. You have your job. I mean, you, you, you can pay your rent. It doesn't mean that you need to abandon everything and just follow your dream. Just give it a try. I didn't really have a deadline, to be honest. I mean, I didn't really have a date and I said that, you know, I will work for this project until then. I just did it. And I think that when you just take one step at a time and you do something every single day in order to build a new project, then suddenly all the pieces come together and it works magically. It seems like you found the, you know, the right business model and the right concepts from the beginning on even though it took you a while to you know implement it and to build the trust with the, with the producers do you have any examples of things you've done that you know didn't work oh a lot of things didn't work and, and <laughs> still you know every day you you learn things that you know you you never uh, knew about uh, the first thing is that i was really excited about this idea and i thought that I would send a presentation, a pitch deck or something, and people would just love it from the very beginning and they would follow it. So this doesn't work. 
uh, I think that nothing will uh, be better than personal communication. I mean, people need to see your face. They need to, to hear your voice in order to trust you. Um, the other thing is that I thought, you know, that the state or the government or, I don't know, the municipalities or whatever, they would support this project just because it supports the, you know, it supports Greece. It supports supports people in need. So in a way, we are doing part of their job, right? And I thought that they would be really supportive at the beginning, but they were not, just because I think that they support projects when they see that they can actually work. Um, another thing is that it's really difficult to find uh, people to work with you and to keep them you know, motivated all the time. Because as I said, we're not like a regular business that uh, cares only about profit and has a really strict structure and so on and so forth. We are a family that works together. We do most of the things together. We do have some job descriptions, but still it's blurry and, and, and it has to be. Otherwise, you cannot be adaptable and um, agile. And it's really hard to keep people motivated and especially volunteers. Most of the times, you know, volunteers uh, are, are really happy to, for instance, to support your project and they want to, to visit an orphanage with you, let's say. But when they do and they see the children there facing, let's say, the problem of malnutrition or not having enough food supplies or enough toys or, I don't know, beds or doors. I mean, we've seen amazing things, unfortunately. Then they are shocked and they don't want to come back. So you lose the volunteers in a way. So it's really difficult to keep people, I think, motivated and to be able to serve your social impact and your business model at the same time. It's a very interesting thing you're saying here so about the volunteers, because it's hard to keep them motivated, especially on the long term, I guess. Have you figured out something that works better than something else? What would you advise to do in order to motivate the volunteers best? What I didn't do at the beginning, and I, and I found it that it's, it's very good, is that uh, you can do some screening. I mean, you need to talk to your volunteers first. Because at the beginning, we just sent a form. We wanted them to ask a few questions, and that's it. So we had their you know, mobile phone and their email and their interests, and that's it pretty much. But now we organize interviews with them. We understand what kind of people they are, what they are interested in, what they want to do, what they can and what they cannot do. And we describe sometimes a few shocking experiences that we've been through and see how they react. So if they say, it's fine, I'm really motivated, I don't care that I'm going to be sad when I leave the orphanage because I will see some shocking images, then we give it a try. If we see that they want to support us in a more, let's say, logistics uh, position or in an event or, I don't know, something more administrative, then uh, we suggest that they, this is the, the right job for them. 
meaning in that case to do a more administrative job in your company yes. or to do something else? Yes, okay. to, to do a more administrative job uh, in our company and support us in this way. Because, you know, it's not when you support a social enterprise or a social mission in general, uh, you do have a lot of administrative jobs that you need to do. And they are crucial and really important. It's not only the heroes who, let's say, save the refugees from drowning. There are a lot of volunteers behind that who do an amazing job. And most of the times they don't understand that they are really important and really their job is really crucial, but it is, trust me. To do something successfully, you need a backbone behind it. And usually the, the people are, who are in this part are usually not recognized enough for, for their work. So the fourth do that you sent me, which is focus on the four P's of social entrepreneurship. People, planet, passion, profit. Yes. I think the most important um, element, first of all, of uh, social enterprise, and maybe the most important element of every business out there, which is small and, uh, and adaptable, is people. Because without them, you, you cannot really go anywhere. You cannot do anything. And as I said, it's the most difficult part to keep the employees or the volunteers motivated. But if you focus on that and, and really listen to them and really work with them, then um, you will be able to have a strong and, and adaptable team. And I keep on using the word adaptable because I think that what we learned from COVID is exactly that, that small teams uh, survive more easily just because they are adaptable. And you, you see that a lot of uh, big companies, they face huge problems just because they don't have the real support of their people. The uh, second P is planet, of course. I mean, without our planet, we won't be able to do anything. We do support people with uh, food supplies. This is our main job. But at the same time, every decision that we make comes through the filter of are we supporting our planet, are we saving our planet, are we doing any harm to, to our planet. So yes, without the planet there won't be any kind of business out there in the future. Passion is really important because as a social entrepreneur, yes, you are trying to solve a social problem, so you need to be passionate about it, otherwise you won't be able to, to do it. And as I said, profit, because a lot of social enterprises, they think that profit is a bad thing. Profit is something that only the big multinational companies should care about. But trust me, you need to care about profit as a social entrepreneur as well. I'd like to talk about the next one, because you actually mentioned it already a bit here. You said, no, be open, transparent and adaptable. Can you iterate a bit on that? And especially when you said you want to keep a smaller team is more adaptable. Is that a wish from you? It doesn't matter how much revenue you make. You want to keep the team at that size so you won't grow it like further. Well, that's the biggest challenge, to be honest, because you do need people. You do need to have more employees and volunteers in order to support all of all of your projects. But at the same time, you don't want to build this um, structure, bureaucratic stru structure where people, you know, focus more on reporting rather than doing. So it's a really huge challenge. I don't really have the answers. 
I will try to keep this, the team as small as possible, but still we need to grow as we grow not only our revenue, but our social impact as well. In terms of adaptability, I will give you a really quick example of what we did after COVID. So when COVID hit Greece, you can understand a pr pretty hard situation and all of the um, food entrepreneurs in our country and the producers were facing huge problems because they couldn't sell their products. They couldn't export their products. We didn't have any kind of uh, tourism and tourists to buy our products. It was really, really difficult for us. So at the same time, all of the foundations in Greece were desperate for food supplies because most of the um, donations coming from the state or the companies or even from indi individuals, they uh, were headed towards uh, the health sector, which was, you know, something that we all expected. So what we did is that we designed a project which is called Hope Boxes and we managed to collaborate with big multinational companies which supported this project and we uh, managed to support uh, the food entrepreneurs and the foundations that received the hope boxes with food supplies and if i'm not mistaken right now after th this project alone supported the foundations with around 20 tons of food to people in needs just because we managed to build this project really fast and we managed to support the small family-owned businesses as well who were once again facing uh, financial problems so this small example is something that unfortunately it, we couldn't do if we were like a huge corporation with 100 employees and we had to report and redesign everything and do some research and so on and so forth. This is why social businesses tend to be small and adaptable. To dig into that examples, so these like hope boxes on, on your website, for example, a partnership with Deloitte, the companies can basically sponsor these boxes and then give them away to organizations they want. I mean, with Deloitte, for instance, every employee had one hope box and he or she decided which foundation will receive this hope box. Domino's Pizza, for instance, the consumers donated just a small amount in order for us to buy with every order. They could donate one small amount in order for us to buy hope boxes for orphanages. So it depends. Talking about the adaptability, for example, if you decide to focus on these projects, how did you manage to basically add another project to your team? So have you like put some stuff aside for a couple of months or? Yes, you have to. Uh, to be honest, 2020 was the first year that our everything was very well designed, very well planned. We knew what we were about to do and suddenly <laughs> everything was destroyed. So uh, yes, we had other projects in mind, bigger projects in a way, and not projects that focus on immediate relief. But, you know, when you have to face this huge crisis, this is what you do as a social entrepreneur. You need to provide solutions to any type of crisis that comes across. So we had to redesign our strategy for 2020 and 2021, unfortunately. Uh, but at the same time, it was a great opportunity for all of us to, you know, test ourselves. 
to see how adaptable we can be, to see how creative we can be and, and how we can, you know, um, put our skills into a test. So it was a great opportunity at the same time. We talked extensively now about the adaptable part. What do you mean? Can you iterate a bit about the, the be open and transparent part in this advice? Sure. If you're a startupper, if you run any type of business, then you don't really have to be open and transparent. I mean, you don't have to. If you want to, it's great, but you don't have to. You, you shouldn't reveal whatever you do or you shouldn't even publish any type of report. Uh, as a social entrepreneur or as an NGO, you need to publish some social impact reports. You need to be really open about what you do. You really need to um, design projects like the hope boxes that I mentioned, where uh, they are completely transparent. For instance, the consumers know that they gave away a tiny amount, like 50 euro cents, Uh, but they know that this amount was uh, gathered and those hope boxes were delivered to this foundation. So every single step that you take, it needs to be transparent and you need to be able to prove all the time, especially in Greece where unfortunately the NGOs or uh, the social sector in general doesn't have a very good reputation, you need to be Uh, very transparent and um, very honest about how you make money and what you do with your profit. That's for all the do's you sent me. And then about the, the, the don't advices, the first one was don't build your model around profit. We discussed that already. And second, very important one, I guess, is don't use social impact as a marketing tool. Yeah, that's a common trap. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, there is a lot of social washing in a way. Uh, everybody wants to be a saint. It's a really difficult path. You need to prove your social impact and your lasting social impact. Giving away a few tons of food doesn't make you a social entrepreneur. Every decision that you make makes you a social entrepreneur. So if you think that you are going to build a business and you are going to just give away a few tons of food or, I don't know, provide a few educational courses for free uh, to people in need, and this will qualify you as a social, to, be, to become a social entrepreneur, then you are mistaken. So right now in this era that we are all living in, people, especially with the use of internet, they can not only identify who says what, but uh, they need to feel connected with your brand or your company, and they, they need to feel aligned with your values. So you, this is why you need to be honest and transparent all the time, because if, you, if you're not serious about those values and you just use them as a marketing tool, then people will notice, and you will get you know from hero to zero, Uh, in no time. You need people who will support what you believe in and, and they will believe it as well and they will be part of that and they will, know, they will want to support you any way they can, even if that means that they will never ever buy your service or your products. So you need to be um, okay with that. 
you need to be uh, frank with the people and especially your customers and uh, you need to convince them first that you mean what you say that you are uh, honest and and you can look them in the eyes and, and they can trust you and then they will buy your products because most of the times in social businesses they will buy the products just because they feel that they help someone in need not just because they love the product it's a different kind of relationship so afterwards okay if they they keep on buying your products so it, of course, they have to like your products and they have to support the products for the products. But at the beginning, they focus on your social mission and they need to uh, be convinced that you are honest and open with them. What I wanted to ask you, what are the different growth channels that you've used to grow, uh, to make people more aware of your company? Because you're selling, is it a B2B2C company? Who is your customer? Uh, we are both. We're B2B and B2C because we do have a few West Grease stores now. And so we, we managed to, to have, you know, the final customers and talk to them and meet them. Uh, but at the beginning, we used to be only B2B. So our customer was, you know, the store owner. Uh, leaving aside the B2C part with your new stores, What are the channels that you've used mostly to grow and to find more uh, shops as uh, customers? So first of all, we started, you know, communicating with buyers and with importers and with stores directly. We do have an excellent communication with stores and we need to keep this communication alive. We don't always necessarily need the buyer, you know, in between. We had a lot of media coverage. We didn't pay, of course, any of it uh, because, you know, this story is interesting for the um, journalists. So they, they invited us for an interview or they hosted an article for us. And especially after uh, this award that we got from the United Nations and the World Bank, we got a lot of media attention. So this always brings new customers, new partners, new buyers and so on and so forth. We are also consistent with our communication and on our social media platforms. We keep on posting our news, our donations and new products. We have a lot of newsletters that people, you know, they get and according to their interests, of course, we have a lot of recipes and everything to, to keep people interested in our mission and in our products. And this is how we grow step by step like organic PR, media coverage, and, and then email marketing for the people who are like basically in social media who are already your followers. Talking about the, the, the funding, you said you had no investors, but you told me you have a hybrid model of funding with different revenue streams. Yes, as a social enterprise, the good thing is that you can have this hybrid funding, different revenue streams, like for instance, we can sell our products or you can sell services, or you can sell your products in various stores, or you can work with companies and sell the products as corporate gifts. You can uh, design CSR programs for big companies and get funding. You can work with foundations and accept grants. So this is not the case most of the times with uh, typical businesses or startups, because they tend to have one or two revenue streams and that's it. 
as a social business, you can have multiple revenue streams, and this is a perfect uh, scenario, especially when you have to face a crisis like the COVID crisis, when everything changes. So you might need to shift and choose another path. So this means that you will get funding from a different um, channel. If you have to look at the proportion of the different revenue, like the revenue you make from the products you're selling versus the other revenue, like funds and grants, what is roughly the proportion? Of I would say it would be around 70% coming from selling the products and 30% from other activities. Confirming your statement that you actually need to have a profitable like revenue model in order to survive and the, all the grants are, are, are things that are nice to add at the top. Um, but you cannot count on them. It's something extra, but you cannot count on them as a yeah. business model. Good. One question I had about expanding teams and you said you try to start offering your, your products abroad as well. So interested to see the model from uh, from Sea Shepherd and Captain Watson to see that, you know, as an NGO, we discussed that, that in, in detail as well, that they actually have, they internationalize a company by having different entities that are starting abroad, like a franchise, but uh, all of them are working kind of independently. They said like they don't report to each other, so they avoid, you know, Sea Shepherd is a bit like you. They also like said, you know, they put their money into operations. They don't put money into administrative things and reporting. So I was thinking, is that something you are like right now considering, for example, internationalizing or how is it going right now, the, the, the beginning of the internationalization for you? Yes, pretty much this is the model. I mean, we designed this social franchise model where the beneficiaries of the stores, of the wise risk stores that we are going to open will be also the entrepreneurs at the same time. So you, again, you have a double mission in a way. This can work both in Greece and abroad. And at the same time, we are currently in discussions to establish, you know, uh, WISE as a legal entity in other countries as well. So we are going to support, let's say, the Italian producers, the French producers, I mean, just um, examples, of course. Uh, and we are going to, to implement pretty much the same model in other countries as well. And in that case, are you going to have a different team yes. starting in the other country? Let's finish with the, the usual questions that I ask all my guests and I love to ask. Uh, first one is, what is the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur? Oh, I think those are the most difficult questions. <laughs> the best advice, I think that it is a really wise uh, woman that I met about 10 years ago. And she's a really strong entrepreneur, not a social entrepreneur, a typical entrepreneur. She said, you know what? And I will, I'm trying to translate it from Greek now, is stop being afraid of fear. Because most of the times, you know, we're not afraid that something specific might happen, but we hate this feeling of fear, you know. It's not only the fear of failure, it's just we don't like to be afraid. We don't like the concept of fear. So if you identify this and you say, you know what, okay, I know that I don't really like fear, being afraid, nobody really likes that, but it's fine. So just keep on moving and we'll see how it goes. Then something good might come up. 
So um, I think this is the best advice, which is pretty simple, but at the same time, it's, you know, pretty efficient. <laughs> so recognizing it as a principle as of, uh, you know, Vipassana meditation, mm-hmm. as soon as you acknowledge the feeling you have inside you, uh, like you, it's usually it comes and goes. Yep, exactly. Very good one. Thank you. Which book would you recommend entrepreneurs like you to read? One of your favorite books or one of the last books that, that you've read that you really like? I think that whoever wants to learn more about social entrepreneurship should read the books of uh, Mohammed Yunus. He is one of the most famous social entrepreneurs. He is the father of the concept of microfinance. He supported millions and millions of people in Bangladesh to get out of poverty. And of course, he won the Nobel Prize. So I think that all his books he only writes about social entrepreneurship. So all his books are uh, pretty interesting for whoever wants to become a social entrepreneur. What training, podcasts, blogs, or influencers you follow or you recommend to follow as an entrepreneur? I really like Malcolm Gladwell. I really like his podcast, so. Tell us one thing, that's the final question. Tell us one thing about you that I wouldn't be able to find out online. Hmm. One thing. Well, as I said, I'm pretty open and transparent, so pretty much everything is online. That's something I think that a personal confession is that most of the times I want to quit, like every single day I want to quit my job and everything, and I feel that it's not worth it. But most of the time something magical happens every single day, like a thank you letter or an orphanage that calls and says thank you for the food supplies, or a producer uh, who is uh, very happy uh, working with us. So something magical happens and every time I I focus again on my mission and my wish for the future. So uh, yeah, that's, I think this confession cannot be found online. (laughs) Thank you. I think that's very inspiring to have someone like you being vulnerable and showing that because with a company like yours, with the mission you have and the impact you have. I'm like, how can you be unsure about the impact you have? Or can you, how can you think about not being motivated? I think for lots of entrepreneurs out there, that's good to hear. I think that every successful uh, person that I met in my life, they do have so many doubts and they feel that they could do something better and faster and you know more efficient. But that's the way life is for the entrepreneurs. They keep on having doubts about everything. It's okay to be vulnerable. <laughs> Thank you. So this is your time, the final words. It's your time to share whatever you want with our audience. Yeah, we are really open. You know, we, we always want to meet new people because as I said, the most important is not uh, B2B or B2C, is age to age, human to human. So this human to human connection um, is really important for us and this is how we managed to, to grow Wise Greece and actually follow this path. Whoever wants to learn more about Wise Greece or support us or whatever, we are all ears, we are in a listening mode. So please contact us or me personally and we'll be happy to meet you. Thank you very much for all your advice today and for your inspiring mission. So keep on going and all the best. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, there are two things you can do that would mean the world to me. The first thing is to sign up for the podcast newsletter. 
that way you will be notified of the new episodes, but you will also get a summary of the learnings at the end of every season, plus for each episode you will get the resources and the list of do's and don'ts that every guest shares with me. And finally, you will also get the opportunity to ask our future guests one question in advance. You can sign up for this newsletter on gtimpact.com. The second thing you can do to be super helpful is to recommend this podcast. For that, you can write a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with your friends, other entrepreneurs and people trying to build a sustainable future. That way we can all learn together and work on a brighter future for us, our children and our planet. Thank you very much and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day.